0: Trade union membership grew again this year. That's three years in a row. More women and men standing together for a
1: fair deal for working people. Amidst the coronavirus crisis, the number of people becoming members of a union has skyrocketed. Unison reported 65,000 new members since the start of the year. And in the last six months, 50,000 people have joined the National Education Union. The Trades Union Congress worked with the Chancellor to create the furlough scheme, and teaching unions were partly responsible for the government U-turn over face masks in schools.
2: There are huge levels of fear and insecurity, and it's no surprise really that uh, individuals want to seek
1: protection, support, advice and guidance, and unions are often the organisations they turn to. So. It certainly seems like union influence has had a boost, as they fight against redundancies and for the health and safety of their members. But what about outside of the workplace? Can unions and their members change the rules of the economy? We're looking at schools to solve the issues that government, that corporations have created, exacerbated and failed to address. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking how can unions transform the economy? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by two New Economics Foundation alumni members. First, Alice Martin, who's currently Labour Specialist at a shareholder advisory firm and one of the authors of Unions Renewed, Building Power in an Age of Finance. Hi, Alice. Hello. Thanks for being with us, Alice. It's so great to have you back. One of the OG members of the podcast from all the years ago. Yeah, it's brilliant to be back. Uh, And we're also joined by Annie Quick, organiser at the IWGB Union and the other author of Unions Renewed. Annie, hello.
0: Hello.
2: Thanks so much for having me back.
1: No worries. So let's dive straight in. We're going to start off by recapping what unions have been doing during the pandemic. So the Trade Unions Congress have said that traffic on their join a union page on their website was up 500%. And it looks like tons of unions have also had a boost in their members. Starting with you, Alice, why do you think that is? What is all that about?
0: So I think that the pandemic has really revealed to all of us how important it is to have a form of of mutual aid in our lives. So a lot of us have been doing this kind of outside of work in our local areas. We've had WhatsApp groups supporting each other through the pandemic to buy shopping, etc. But also in our workplaces, I think we've all really realised the importance of getting together with your colleagues and actually sharing stories about your fears, your concerns, how you're being treated, and then taking action in response to that. So you know, unions are vehicle to do this and they exist in our workplaces they have done for years and years and years and it's fantastic but now more people are discovering that and, and getting really active in their unions and I think something that's really become apparent during the pandemic is the kind of the importance of, of having uh, online organising as well as offline. And I don't actually think that's a bad thing. So lots of union branch meetings have been forced to move online. and um, There are now union branches operating via Zoom, um, and there have been ma- membership gains from that because unions have actually been able to access workforces that they couldn't previously. In hotels, for example, uh, it was really difficult for unions to actually gain physical access to the premises of hotel chains because those managers didn't want them in there. And there's really low levels of representation of of union membership in hotels. And we're in the whole hospitality sector, actually. So only around 3% of people are are in a union. Whereas now with kind of digital organising, more of those workers can get in touch with their colleagues and share their stories and, and become part of their union. I think there's also been a a kind of increased awareness within companies by the kind of executives of of those companies of the importance of listening to their workers. And so in my day job, I talk to corporate executives on a weekly basis in, in major companies. So the kind of companies that we all know of, Amazon, Uber, supermarkets, but also some of the companies that most of us will have never heard of. So food factories and some of the companies that sit behind our care homes. And what I've found in, in those conversations is that executives are now having to really acknowledge the important role that unions have been playing to keep people safe, to keep the virus out of that workplace. And I think there's a kind of new... Um, a new bit of leverage potentially there for unions in in that kind of companies are having to recognise their role and also the shareholders in those companies are having to recognise that role. And and I've been in situations where shareholders, so the kind of, you know, the owners of these companies, the investors, are asking to speak directly to members of the workforce to hear what's actually going on in the workplace. They're not satisfied with just listening to management. And I I think that's a big kind of leap and it it could be a, a watershed moment for unions but there's a lot of work to be done to kind of turn this increased awareness and increased activity into, you
1: know, significant increased membership and power. Mm, it certainly seems like a big shift. Just before we uh, come over to to Annie on this, I just wanted to ask a quick follow up. So. I mentioned in the intro that there's been some key moments over the past six months where unions have really successfully influenced government policy. Alice, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, how that's worked, how influential have unions actually been in what's happened since the pandemic hit?
0: Yeah, so... um TUC, the kind of confederation of most of our big unions here in the UK, were directly involved in designing the furlough scheme. So they you know, went to government in the early stages of the pandemic and said, hey, we need something to prevent masses of redundancies happening in these early stages. You need a model. Here's some ideas. And they really helped to shape that. And they, they made sure it was announced quickly to avoid that kind of early wave of redundancies where possible. Um, And I think that kind of involvement at the level of government, at the level of politics, is is something that we've not seen for a long time for the trade union movement. So historically... Uh, in the kind of post-war period, unions, you know, had had a major seat at the table in terms of deciding how the economy was run, uh, shaping up policies, intervening in the labour market. And really, since the 1980s, that role has gone away. And there have been various restrictions put on trade unions, making it more difficult for them to have that kind of influence, and, and then kind of a change in political and governmental direction as well, away from being interested in working with unions. So it is really significant that the union movement have played this role at a kind of political level. I think, there are concerns from within the movement that that was only uh, momentary and that they're not going to be listened to as we kind of build out of the crisis but hopefully that's not the case
1: okay okay fingers crossed but it sounds good so coming back to the present day Annie you've written about something we've talked about on the podcast before called bargaining for the common good so could you tell us a little bit more about what that is and where it comes from
2: Yeah, so um, Bargaining for the Common Good, the name is actually literally just the name of a network of unions and organisations sort of started up in the US. But one of the things about Bargaining for the Common Good that I think it makes it particularly relevant for the kind of economic moment that we're in Um, is that it really breaks down those boundaries between work and then other areas of our economic lives. So it's really rejecting that idea that unions are these very kind of narrow organisations that are focused just on workplaces and workplace grievances and it sees unions as sort of broad organisations that are advocating and are organisations of the working class for working class interests and I should say by working class what what I really mean there is any of us who live off our labour primarily rather than Making profits off assets, and so this kind of bargaining for the common good approach, and this sort of broad approach, isn't new. It's been a really strong thread throughout sort of radical, progressive unionism. Phrases like social movement unionism, whole worker organizing, those kind of things—that's what they're sort of getting at a lot of the time. But it's kind of got, I think, a new energy and a new excitement. So, uh, some examples, particularly from the US, lots of you will have heard of the Chicago Teachers Strike that happened in 2019. Um, one of the things about that strike is that they weren't just bargaining for workplace conditions to improve, although that was important. They were also bargaining for a load of other really important stuff, not just to them, but also to the students um, and the communities that they served. So, for example, they won sanctuary for undocumented migrants while on school property, um, and they even included a demand for affordable housing. Now, that didn't go through eventually, but it really represents how big they were willing to stretch those bargaining demands. Um, So that's the really famous one. But there's loads of others that don't get as much airtime. So teachers in Minnesota, they're demanding, again, as part of their actual contract negotiations. This isn't like a campaign on the side. This is literally part of what they're striking for. They're demanding that the Minnesota district stop all business and all dealings with any bank that is um, foreclosing on families with school aged children. In the US, you've also got bank workers through organisations like the Committee for Better Banks who are refusing to sell predatory loans, um, particularly those loans which sort of target black communities uh, and impoverishing those communities. So in lots of ways, this is unions refusing, (laughs) refusing to be put in a box. And really expanding out to all of those different areas of the economy, that particularly through financialization and uh, sort of financialized capitalism, all those different areas of the economy that are affecting and impoverishing uh, working class people.
1: Wow. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating. Alice, I was wondering if you had any examples of how you might imagine it working in the UK. I mean, Annie gave some great examples there from the US, but is, are there issues particularly here that we could use bargaining for the common good to win?
0: Yeah. Definitely. And I think there's already activity among UK unions in in trying to think creatively about some of this stuff and do these types of campaigns. And as Annie said, there's a long history of this kind of community organising within trade unions. Um, I think one sector that is kind of ripe for this type of organising is care. And and I mean, kind of that that care is an expanded sector there to include social care, so care homes, um, but also childcare, nurseries, and also other types of care as well, foster care, where we're seeing across this kind of sector a really sort of potent example of the privatisation of the kind of gains to be had in that sector and then a socialisation of the risks. And what I mean by that is there are lots of private companies operating in care sectors. So many of our care homes are owned by private equity companies, which is a a really kind of opaque model of ownership that means you don't really know who owns shares in that company. And a lot of the profits of those companies are kind of being sucked out to the shareholders going abroad, often without proper tax treatment And the reason I I kind of flag it as an example and and I think it's it's an opportunity is because despite all of this, despite this kind of offshoring of of the profits of, of this sector, The actual work of the sector is a real social good. So caring for our communities is something that we need to do here at home physically in our communities. It's not something that can be physically offshored. It's not something that can be automated. And care workers, as we've seen during the crisis, are kind of essential workers with such connections to the communities that they're serving um, so that it's an example, I think, where unions could really build those links across communities involving the care workers, involving the care recipients and their families, even the local authorities in the, in the local area, to build these kind of broad campaigns uh, to kick some of those opaque owners out of the sector, really, and, and to take some of that power back towards the workers and, and the care users.
1: Okay, I want to circle back to the other ways in which bargaining for the common good could be used here. I mean, it certainly sounds like there's lots of amazing opportunities. But before we do that, let's broaden out a little bit um, and talk about this idea of financialization that you've kind of both been referencing. So you write in your book that four decades of financialization has changed the rules that govern the economy. Annie, could you just give us a quick explainer of what financialization is or what it means in the sense that you've used it and how it's affected our economy?
2: Yeah. So financialization is really just the trend towards a kind of increased size and influence of finance on our economy and our lives. So um, when you say finance, you think of things like currency trading, stock market trading, banking, uh, insurance, real estate, that kind of thing. But I think it's it's really important to note that finance and financialization isn't something that happens sort of over there and these other bits of the economy. It's deeply enmeshed in all parts of our daily lives. So financialization means that many of us now are living on debt as much as on the wages that we make. And that could be student debt, housing debt, payday loans. Uh, it also means that many of us are paying more in rent because of the inflated assets like houses. But even when we go and use public services, that public service might well be outsourced to a private company that's actually run by a private equity firm that's based in a tax haven. So in all sort of areas of our life, including, of course, work, which we'll come on to, financialization is changing the sort of dynamics and It's important to say, again, that the financialization isn't new. So um, it's been around as long as capitalism and it's sort of, particularly in the UK, wrapped up a lot in our colonial history. But it's really grown since the 1980s. I think we can think of it as sort of capitalism's latest real attempt at rent seeking. And I think that's quite an important term. Sometimes people talk about rent seeking or a rentier economy. And that's really the practice of making money from assets without producing anything in the process. But in most cases, that rent seeking still involves extracting wealth from the working classes. So, for example, two classic methods of rent seeking would be, again, sort of charging us rent to live in houses or charging us interest on loans that we are forced to take. And that's always happened, but it's become more and more sort of extreme in the last few decades. So we now live in an economy where houses are often making more money than people do and where people are relying as much on debt as wages to get by but finance is also finding kind of more creative and different ways of extracting wealth from people within financialization. So a particularly macabre example is dead peasants insurance. Um, So this was a practice that got going particularly in the 1990s, and it is where employers take out life insurance on their workers, often without their workers' knowledge. So you, you end up in these awful situations where, you know, when somebody passes away, it suddenly becomes clear to their loved ones that their employer has cashed in, you know, $40,000 on their life through that life insurance. So in those kinds of schemes, I should say that that's sort of wound up mostly now. um, But companies like Walmart were spending sort of overall about $8 billion were spent on those kinds of schemes. And so in that situation, workers aren't only being used as employees for the work that they did that actually become kind of assets for employers to
0: speculate on. And if I could just maybe jump in on that actually because I think um, yeah I mean that example was a real shocker when we came across it for the book and we were like this is grim (laughs) Um, but there are other kind of versions of it that we're we're probably all more aware of but we haven't really thought of them in these terms so I think Uber the the kind of model of Uber and Uber drivers is is an interesting one to kind of think this through so you know uber drivers are often forced to get into quite a lot of debt in order to buy a car which is their means of production you know to be able to do their work if they don't have a car they can't be an uber driver so they kind of get into a, a, into a debt to buy this and then they end up working for a company that gives them no no workers rights because they're not considered a worker and on top of that that company extracts money from them so extracts a rent of sort from them in order to have the use of the brand and the use of the app um, and the, so the remaining portion that that Uber driver gets from their labor to kind of live off after they've you know paid off the bank for the car and after they've paid off Uber for rent of the app, you know the the amount they have left over of it is very small. And on top of that, Uber are kind of capitalizing on the fact that because these workers have no workers' rights, they're kind of operating under significant risks to themselves. So when the court cases have been carrying on basically demanding that Uber give some sort of workers' rights like sick pay to Uber drivers, they've actually responded by saying, well, we'll create some insurance schemes to sell to the Uber drivers so that they will get some kind of sick pay when they can't work. And that's a really clear example of a company coming up with a financial product in the place of what would have been a workers' right previously in a a different model.
1: Wow, <laughs> it's it's really quite mind boggling. You started to answer the question, but I was hoping you could potentially offer a bit more on the specific ways in which exactly what you're describing, this kind of move towards financialisation uh, has impacted unions, union membership and the kind of labour movement more broadly.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if you take sort of individual workplaces and individual workers, financialisation in various different ways has made it sort of sometimes harder to organise and bargain. So one way in which it's done that is that it can be quite difficult to identify who your actual boss is. So under financialisation, we're seeing sort of multiple layers of subcontracting, not just in the private sector, but also in the public sector where profits are being kind of creamed off at all these different layers. And so if you're at the bottom, say if you're a cleaner at the bottom of that sort of pile of subcontracting, it can be very difficult to know who ultimately has the power to increase your wages? And it can also be hard to find out how much money there is actually available. So a kind of key part of that bargaining process is to say, OK, these are your profits and, you know, we want a larger part of those profits. But again, in a financialized model where you've got uh, multiple different actors involved, uh, different shareholders, lots of them very hard to sort of identify, you don't have that basic information and there's lots of different ways as well. So, for example, one of the very explicit uh, strategies of uh, modern financialized companies is to go into debt intentionally, often sort of as part of tax avoidance schemes. And again, that that reduces the money available for wages. So, if you know, again, if I'm a worker and I say, look, I need more money, the company can turn around and say look, we literally don't have it. Look at all the debt that we're in. <laughs> um, so in various different ways, it can kind of weaken the hand of workers in particular workplaces.
1: I guess it's a kind of follow up, but about privatization and subcontracting, like obviously in this kind of move, there's been a massive increase in companies kind of farming out their labor to other countries and and subcontracting bits here and there. And obviously we've seen that at play in things like NHS privatization. So how does that impact unions? Is it more difficult for them to kind of find their potential members and work with them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would go as far as to say that a lot of outsourcing is literally a union busting tactic. So we've got much higher rates of unionisation in the public than the private sector. Um, And so you've got multiple situations where you have outsourced workers that are on much, much poorer wages and pay than their sort of publicly employed counterparts, despite the fact that they're doing very similar work. And I think actually the kind of public private divide in a financialized economy is less and less relevant uh, because of that merging and, and mixing that you get between the two sectors at an economy wide level, financialization has also sort of changed the game a bit when it comes to the labour movement as a whole. So what it's done, I think, is really changed where wealth is concentrated in the economy. And one of the most interesting bits of work um, on this has been done by a union organiser called John Bowent. And what he identified was that as a rule, not in every single case, but as a rule, workers tend to be concentrated in sectors of the economy that generate quite small profits so sectors like retail care and education um, including yeah areas of public sector where there are, you know isn't any profits as such because they're public sector. And then, if you look at areas of the economy that are very high profit, so the areas that are really creating large amounts of wealth and fueling those kind of runaway inequality at the top, those are in sectors that often have relatively few employees. So, um, sectors like finance, insurance, real estate, if you look at the size of those sectors compared to the number of people that they employ, it's much, much lower. And actually, the, the implications of that are quite big, if you think about it. So what it means is that even if we did a really, really good job of organising and increasing the wages in those low profit areas of the economy, we might still be missing out on a lot of the sort of big wealth that occurs in sort of a modern financialized capitalism.
1: Mm, Okay, this makes sense. So the last question I had in this particular area then was around what specific areas of the economy are kind of outside the influence of the labour movement, if any? I mean, I know you've mentioned that there's higher rates of uh, union membership in the public sector, etc. But are there whole areas of the the economy where the labour movement just doesn't really get a look in?
2: So one of the things that um, I think we need to think about is almost all of the areas of the economy where there's big amounts of wealth being created, require people to cooperate at some level, but it's just that they're not always as workers. So crucially, if you look at debt, at the kind of all the sort of banking and payday loans and all that stuff around debt, sure, there might not be loads and loads of workers employed in those sectors, although there are some, and the Committee of Better Banks is doing some really interesting work with that, but they still require millions of people every day to be willing to pay interest on the loans that they take. So if we can incorporate unionisation in other aspects of the economy, like debt and like rent, then we can expand the ways in which we are organising against finance and against capital. So it's almost like at any point in the economy where um, capital is extracting value from people, that is also a potential site of leverage that we can organise around.
1: Mm, So that's where groups like the London Renters Union and other tenants associations come in, I guess. Um, It's all making sense. All right. So we've talked about bargaining for the common good a little bit already, but just to come back to you, Alice. So as I mentioned before, is bargaining for the common good the main way that unions can change the rules of the economy or are there other ways as well that they might start to do that?
0: Um, I I think it's a really important way of kind of building up a big bargaining unit. So a bargaining unit is what you might think of as being, you know, the, the people, you and your colleagues that you get together in order to make demands on your manager. If you can kind of expand that bargaining unit out into your community or even involving shareholders, putting on pressure on shareholders to do something for your campaign, then I think that, yes, that that's a really effective means and will be important um, at the moment, given the amount of kind of financialised sectors that that we're kind of facing and that are crumbling during the crisis. But I think there are other areas of the economy that unions certainly can play an important role. And I think part of that is actually about being quite visionary about what work looks like, what work could be like um, in the future. And I think this is something that unions have a really strong history in. Um, So something we talk about in the book is shorter working week campaigns and the kind of history of the trade union movement in reducing our hours in work. And I think that... Building more campaigns in this area is something that we're, we're probably going to see again building out of the crisis because part of the role that, that unions can play is giving people a sense of the kind of life quality and job quality that they can have. Um, and we're hearing at the moment about this kind of trade off that we're going to have to face between numbers of jobs in the economy and then the quality of jobs in the economy. And I think shortening the working week is a way that you don't have to do that trade-off so we can have good jobs shared across a greater number of people.
1: Yeah, so you mention in the book that debt-laden firms are collapsing and then workers are organising to determine what comes next. So is that an example of what you mean or are there other more specific things there?
0: Yeah, so um, a kind of whole area that we cover in the book is this idea that the main way of cutting rent-seeking off at its source is to actually democratise the ownership of a company. So people can only kind of suck profits out of a company if it's a privatised or a financialized firm. But if that company is owned by its workers um, or by the state, then you don't have that model of rent-seeking. So we kind of explore the role of of unions in actually bringing more ownership into public and worker hands. And you can think of that at a very kind of micro level, so individual firms where there might be a potential for a worker buyout. And we, we cover an example of a nursery chain actually in Australia that collapsed a few years ago. It was their biggest nursery chain and it collapsed because it had gotten into so much debt it just had to close its doors, and the government had to pump it with loads of money to keep those doors open temporarily. And we talk about the fact that if workers had had the opportunity to organize and if unions had been more active in that sector, that could have been a really crucial moment to take ownership properly into democratic hands, whether that was through a combination of cooperative ownership models and also state ownership. Um, but unfortunately, because there wasn't that organization and, and kind of union membership within the sector, uh, what happened was that kind of moment was missed and, and and the sector is now better. There are more non-profit nurseries there, but it wasn't a moment to kind of bring a greater amount of kind of worker control into the sector, which we think is is an important thing to try and achieve. I think it's a difficult time now to be talking about worker ownership because the economy is in the state that it's in and, and we really don't know what the next stages of the pandemic and, and the economic crisis are going to be. So I think talking about kind of increased... Worker ownership, you know, it comes with risks at this time because as a worker owner, you're also taking on the kind of risk of a company failing. But I think an increased role for public ownership with greater kind of union representation in those firms, I think, is definitely something we should be promoting and organising for at the moment.
1: Mm, Okay, so I'm going to come to you, Annie, for the final question, which is, uh, you've outlined in this podcast and in the book, some really great ways that unions and their members can intervene in the wider economy. So what would you say are the first steps for unions who are wanting to do that, who are wanting to expand on defending working conditions to campaigning for a more democratic economy or beyond? What, what What would be your top tips?
2: So I think a lot of it is about really trying to understand the economy and that can be really doing research into the individual company that you're focusing on. So at the IWGB where I work, we do quite a lot of research and workers do quite a lot of research into the company that they are working for. And that includes sort of following the money, trying to work out how private equity is involved, all that kind of thing in order to really identify who's profiting from my labour, um, and how we can target them and what kind of leverage we can we can build against that. So that's a really important part. I think another thing, though, is to just be really bold, as I say, about um, not being kept in that sort of box around, you know, all we can think about is paying conditions. So one of the things that I think we've perhaps learned from the bargaining for the common good movement in the US is that those examples that I talked about earlier where teachers have been bargaining for issues of um, racial and social justice, literally within their contracts, so in part of their contract negotiations, that's not allowed. <laughs> that's sort of illegal, basically. And I think, that, um, I think that the question is not, am I allowed to do this? It's, the question is always, do I have the power to do this? So I think, you know, yes, we have to just go back to basics. We are still got very, very low union membership in this country. We've got so much work to do just doing the basic workplace and methodical relationship based organizing. Um, But as part of that, I then think we need to yeah, be big and, and be bold and be focusing on that broad democratization of the economy.
1: Fantastic. So, so, this is a, I lied, it wasn't the last question. This is a final kind of 30 seconder for both of you. In your kind of ideal democratic economy, what role would unions play? I'm going to come to you first, Alice, and then Annie, you can have the last word. So, ideal democratic economy, what are the unions doing? Uh,
0: so, I think it would be about uh, devolving power away from corporations and the state wherever possible. So, unions would be very active in individual workplaces, they'd be calling their shots on kind of how that workforce was treated in terms of its pay, its working hours, its conditions. But I think moving up from there, they'd have a role to play at the level of whole sectors as well. So kind of setting standards and and you know creating sectors that work in the economy. Um, and then at the level of kind of politics and, and corporate governance, they'd be holding bosses and, and politicians to account at all levels. Um, and just to add on what Annie was saying you know needing to actually build up union membership I think that is really important but I think it's still important to mention that we do have a quarter of our workforce roughly who are union members at the moment that is a lot of people so I think we are starting from quite a strong base and if we get more strategic about how we kind of use that membership and get active then I think there could be some really kind of exciting times ahead brilliant
1: and Annie same question
2: yeah, so I would like to see unions being kind of the primary movement of the working classes. You don't see them as something that is um, narrow and is only just to do with work. I would like them to be something that everyone is a member of, 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 all working class people are members of, and that they're seen very much as the vehicle by which we achieve, you know, whatever issues of racial, environmental, economic and social justice, you know, that, that, that transformation that we so desperately need that unions are seen as the vehicle
1: to do that. Sounds good to me. Uh, Thank you both. Brilliant, brilliant women for joining me. That is sadly all we've got time for this week, but a banging way to kick off the new series. Alice Martin, uh, you first. Thanks for being with us. Where can people get a copy of you and Annie's, your and Annie's book? You and Annie's book? Who knows how to say that? Unions Renewed. Where can they go?
0: Um, Probably just go to the Polity website and then you don't have to pay Amazon fees when you're buying it. So yeah, Polity is the publisher. Um, We're going to blog about it on the Nest blog
1: as well. So there'll be a link there. Sounds great. And if people want to hear more from you specifically, Alice, where can they go? What should they read? How can they track you down?
0: So I'm on Twitter at, um, at Alice P. Martin. And I'm there talking about holding big corporations to account on a daily basis is what, is what i'm trying to do um, and we're writing various bits and pieces um, for navara for the tribune um etc for the book as well so we'll have some more articles coming out soon
1: fantastic and annie quick big thanks to you as well if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read um they can just follow me again on twitter it's just at annie quick fab That's it for today's Weekly Economics podcast, but we'll be back next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.